St. Peter, in his first epistle, writes and cautions us with these words. Be sober. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. I chose that passage because, like our Lenten bidding that we prayed on Ash Wednesday, it calls us to be aware, to examine ourselves and our weak points, those places that you know, we are most susceptible. And I chose it because it cast the devil in stark and frightening terms. Yes, I will agree that, you know, the devil may be subtle and a trickster, perhaps, disguised as an angel. But in the end, the devil, the evil spirit, is a roaring lion, constantly on the prowl for someone to devour, someone to yield to his temptations and therefore turn them from their faith. In today's gospel, that someone is Jesus Christ. And we find him before he begins his ministry. He is in the wilderness, the, the place of unknown. And he is alone. Scripture tells us that he was full of the Holy Spirit. Right? This comes right after he is baptized. So he's full of the Holy Spirit. And it is this spirit that leads him in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Why, we might ask, if only to prepare him as, and again, in our Lenten bidding, it says that this is a time of preparation. And so Jesus is in a time of preparation, being tested to prepare him for the hunger and the rejection that was sure to come, for the suffering and the pain that would tempt him to use his power for his own will and not for God's will. The temptations. If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become a loaf of bread. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from this pinnacle. And then there on the cross at Calvary, one of the thieves cries out, Are you not the Messiah? Then save us and yourself. Yes, he was the Messiah though not the one Israel expected. Endowed with limitless power, he did not come to wreak havoc on the world. He came, as Zechariah sang so beautifully there in the beginning of Luke's gospel, if you remember that passage of, of, of the old father singing the song of joy as he holds his own child, who would be John the Baptist. He sings of the one who is to come and says that this one will give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. He will come to guide our feet into the way of peace. Peace, brothers and sisters, and not war. The gospel passage shows us Jesus' response to the temptation of power. Each sly suggestion is an attempt to lead him into disobedience. Now, we only hear in the scripture passage of three temptations, but the scripture tells us that he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil, so there were innumerable temptations that have already happened. He, like us, was in constant combat, assaulted 
by many temptations, as our colleague says. These, of course, followed him throughout his ministry. You recall one time when he and his disciples are, are going through the field, the wheat field, on, on the Sabbath day? Recall that? And they are, you know, reaching out and grabbing, you know, pieces of grain and, and feeding themselves with, with the seeds there of grain. He has power, and it seems to me what would be the more perfect time to sort of snap your fingers and whip up a few loaves of bread? He has that power. In fact, power resonates from him. He, he moves to the world in the gospel like someone that is just vibrating, right? It's like, almost like a force field that's around him. If you go into Luke's gospel, it says that the crowds were pressing in on him, trying to touch him because power was coming out of him. And it was healing all of them. And then there was the woman who was bleeding for 12 years who reaches out her hand and just touches, touches his garment. She's healed, and he says, I felt power go out from me. What temptation to have absolute power at one's disposal. The earthly saying, which I'm sure you are all familiar with, is absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we can see that played out in any disordered power dynamic from kings and dictators whose actions dominate the news cycle to countless other relationships known to us and unknown. The use of power is at the core of the second temptation that we read about today. The temptation in which the devil promises to give Jesus the glory of all the kingdoms of the earth, authority over all of them. He, in a sense, promises to make Jesus bigger than Caesar. But Jesus is not fooled by the devil's trickery. In this, he stands apart from us. And in many ways, his actions present a stark contrast to those of the church. Church writ large, church writ small. Theologian Henry Nouwen writes these words. One of the greatest ironies of the history of Christianity is that its leaders constantly gave in to the temptation of power. Political power, military power, economic power, moral and spiritual power. Indeed, it seems that the roaring lion is no stranger to the cathedral or to the storefront. We are called to follow one who did not cling to his divine power, one who, in the words of the letter to the Hebrews, was tempted in every respect as we are, yet did not fall. But we, however, are only human. And so we pray, come quickly to help us. This is our prayer to God, what we heard in the college. Come quickly to help us. You know the weaknesses of each of us. And now one goes on to say, what makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible? Maybe, he says, it is that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God, easier to control people 
than to love people. Easier to own life than to love life. Those words of, of Nowen come from a very small book that he wrote called In the Name of Jesus. It's a book on Christian leadership in which he examines the three temptations, and it's one that's going to be one of my devotions during this time to just chew over and meditate with this idea of the temptations, the lures of power, and how that can trip up myself as a leader and all of us. Some of you may know of, of Henry Nouwen, but I don't want to presume that everyone just, you know, I threw out that name and you all know who he is. He was a theologian of the 20th century. He had climbed to the pinnacle of academic greatness, shall we say, of academic power, of academic prestige, teaching at Yale, teaching at Harvard, teaching at the University of Notre Dame, invited to speak all over the world, loved and adored, admired. After 20 years of that, he said he came to a place of spiritual death. And then, in the way that Jesus was led by the Spirit, now and too was led, only he to a community of the mentally and physically handicapped, a place where his achievements and power meant nothing. And he was forced there to rediscover his true identity amid the daily challenges that were presented by this new life. He, he says it was not easy. It's not easy when you're so used to telling people what to do, and they jump. And now he's with people who have half of them, 90% of them can't even read a book. Don't even know anything about him. They just know who is he to them in this place. He says for him it was a necessary change. Necessary because if we are lucky, we can grow through adversity. As some say, there's one phrase, you have to go through the fire, right? You have to go through the fire to become something new. Again, we refer to St. Peter, where he says, rejoice, even if now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, your faith more precious than gold, that through this testing by fire, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. Testing, going through the fire. Or some of you who are familiar with the sea might know the phrase, smooth seas never made a skilled sailor. Necessary. In a sense, Jesus' time of testing was also necessary. Gave him a chance to refine his identity. In a sense, you can say that the, the wilderness was a forge for him, where metal is heated until it can be worked and reshaped. Scripture tells us that when the 40 days were over, Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee. Brothers and sisters, we have access to that power. We have access to that same spirit. 
And one gift of these 40 days of Lent is that we can take a hard look at our own selves, at what temptations and what impediments there are that might be keeping us, that might be keeping this church from putting that spirit and that power to its full and best use. All we need to do is go back through the litany of penitence that's there on Ash Wednesday. Because that, in a sense, is a, a checklist. It's a checklist to check ourselves. There's one that goes in there that should be very appropriate to this time, our inordinate desire of, of things and our sort of neglect of creation. In a sense, that's talking about the crisis of climate change that is right upon us. There's another one that I really am always stung by when I read it. It is the one where we confess our envy of those more fortunate than ourselves. It always takes me back to a time when I was at a parish where they always struggled with finances. The health insurance would lap. The pension payments wouldn't be made. It was constant. And then I would read about an endowed church where the rector was getting paid more than the entire budget of my church. And when a colleague's church got a wonderful gift, a wonderful financial gift, it was almost through great, grated or gritted teeth that I had to say, God be praised. How wonderful that is. I struggle with it. Envy of those more fortunate than ourselves. And of course, it's not just limited to those who, who have not. Envy strikes all of us, right? In a sense, that's what keeping up with the Joneses is all about. They got four bathrooms, I need five, right? They've got a 150-foot yacht, I need a 155-foot yacht. Envy about those more fortunate than ourselves. In the checklist of the litany of penitence, ways for us to, again, look in the mirror, find ourselves, refine ourselves. Envy, a monster, as they say. It is one of the roaring lion's sharpest teeth. But there are many others that are listed there. And it is especially, as I say, during this season that we are in, that we seek to confront our own demons, to confront them and to overcome them, the whispering voices that call us to turn from our faith, that call us to put God to the test, that deceive us. This is the time for us to stare them down, to, in a sense, turn and face the enemy so that the victory that is won in the wilderness by Jesus Christ, that is won on the cross at Calvary, that that same victory can be won in our hearts and in our lives as we pray on Ash Wednesday, accomplish in us, Lord, the work of your salvation. That's what we're doing. That's what we're asking for, to accomplish in us the work of salvation so that we then can glorify God in this world. 
As I said, brothers and sisters, be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking you to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith and in Christ your Savior. Amen.